The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. This morning we'll give attention to verses 17 through 24 in Luke, chapter 10. Luke records the following. He said, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. As we jump back into the Gospel of Luke and his narrative here, the life and ministry of Jesus, we dive into what amounts to a rather challenging text, a text that uh, sort of has some twists and turns. It has some, some language that is a bit challenging for us, particularly on the surface, and it doesn't get much easier even when we dig underneath the surface, but we'll try this morning to, to make some clarity to what may seem opaque as we read it. Uh, and the text is also a little challenging in the sense that it's hard to find sort of a thread that weaves it all together. Um, but we will do the best we can this morning to, to, to sort of draw the picture together to what's happening and what Christ is saying. Um, the best way I can sort of outline or organize our thoughts this morning is this. What, what we see in this text is a, a thread of joy that goes through. We're going to see uh, the joy of 72 missionaries who come back from their missionary journey that Christ sent them on. They're going to come back and what marks them in their return is joy uh, for some particular reasons. And, and we're going to then see uh, so sort of a, a ministry joy, if you will. And, and on the heels of that joy, Christ gives them a ministry warning. So we'll look at that as well. And then we'll see uh, that not only are the 72 missionaries rejoicing, but Christ himself is rejoicing. But he's rejoicing, uh, at least in some ways, for different reasons than the ones that the 72 are rejoicing So we'll look to the joys of Christ, and Lord willing, we'll see in the end sort of a ministry blessing. 
Uh, so that's the way we'll take it. Verses 17 through 19 sort of launch us right back into the narrative, and, and we see ministry joy here. The 72 return with joy, we're told. When last we were together last week, it, we, we saw Christ commission and send 72 missionaries, really the first sort of home missionary journey, if you will. Apart from the initial 12 apostles, this is sort of the first group mission commissioning that we see in the New Testament. These 72 followers of Christ, they were not as among the 12 apostles, but they were a broader circle of followers that had, had been following Christ for some time, who had believed in him, who had placed their faith in him, who had entrusted their lives to him, who were faithful believers and faithful followers, and he calls them out of the larger crowd, and he commissions them to go in very much the same way he had earlier commissioned the 12. And he gives them a very, very similar commission, and he sends them out two by two in a very similar way into the region into which he was, he was preparing himself to go. And as he launched them, he had given them some very strict instructions. Again, very similar to that of the 12. He had told them to, to just launch out, really, with the clothes on their back. And they were not to take uh, additional supplies with them. They weren't to plan for tomorrow and next week. They were just to launch out with what they had today. They didn't need extra shoes. They didn't need a knapsack with supplies. They didn't need extra food. They didn't need extra money. All they needed was the gospel and the blessing of Christ, and they were to go. And they were to go into each city, and they were to start knocking on doors, and, and whoever would open the door of hospitality to them and welcome them in, uh, they were to go into that house, and they were to stay there until their ministry was done in that city. They were to speak peace, shalom over the house that received them, and they were to, with gratitude, receive the hospitality of the family that opened the door to them until their time was done, and they were then to move into the next city. And should they run into a town where nobody opens the door and welcomes them in, there was a, a response that was appropriate for that. And, and that response was they were to get out into the middle of the city and they were to kick the, the dust off of their shoes and they were to speak a message of, of condemnation, of God's judgment over that city. They were to remind that city that even though they've rejected the truth of God, the truth of God is still the truth of God. And the judgment of God was still going to come, whether they believed it or not. And they were to move on to the next town. No doubt these men were anxious and were afraid. They were having in very, very real ways to, to step out and to act on faith. Put yourself in their shoes and you would find, I think, immediately in your heart rising up questions and anxieties and fears. How is this going to work out? Are you sure there's gonna be enough food? We get hungry every day. Are you sure that there's gonna be somebody that's gonna believe this message? Are you sure there's gonna be somebody to open the door? And Jesus said, just go, just go and you'll see. Yet they obeyed Christ. They did it. They went where they were sent. They did what Christ called them to in spite of their fears, in spite of their anxieties. And last we saw them last week, they were sort of headed off into the sunset Obeying Christ, not sure how this was going to turn out. And if you and I didn't have the whole Bible to read and we didn't know the end of the story already, if your Bible just ended at verse 16 of Luke chapter 10 last week and you didn't know what was going to happen and you didn't read ahead, then you and I would be on the edge of our seats this morning. We'd be wanting to know, how did this turn out? What happened to these 72 people? Did they all make it to the end? Did they have what they needed? 
Were there people that would welcome them in? Did they have a place to sleep at night? Did anybody believe their message? How much rejection were they gonna endure? Were they gonna get discouraged and give up? What's gonna happen to this big group of missionaries? We would be on the edge of our seats like they probably were as they launched out and took step after step down the road. We're not told how long they were gone. We're not told even precisely where they went. We just know that they uh, set out and they, they were gone for some period of time. It seems to me likely that this was a short-term sort of a mission trip, if you want to call it that. They were gone long enough to see Christ's provision in their life and to learn the lessons that he intended for them to learn. And then at an appointed time, they were to return back and report what happened. And it seems that that's what took place because we're told at the beginning of our text this morning that they returned with joy. So it appears that they all came back, at least in close proximity to one another, and their experiences were quite similar. And their response was an overwhelming sense of absolute joy. When they come back, they're not discouraged. They, they hadn't given up. They had made it to the end. And they came back filled with joy. They're not exhausted, apparently. They're not discouraged. They're not burnt out. They're not beaten down. They are bursting with joy. They're exuberant. They're like kids coming back to their heavenly father with joy bursting from their hearts. They can't wait to report to Jesus what took place when they obeyed him and stepped out in faith. Their ministry trip had been an incredible success. Now, the only thing that Luke records for us in our text that they actually said is that they make a comment about the, the marvelous way that the demons submitted to them. But we shouldn't assume that that's all that was said in this encounter. It's likely that that, if you will, was sort of the, the unexpected highlight of their experience, but it certainly was not the totality of their experience. They came back bursting with joy because all the things that, that, that Christ had promised would take place took place. When they stepped out in faith, they saw the power of God at work in their lives and ministries. They saw incredible things happen that they had never imagined. They were bursting with joy because though they set out with nothing, God had supplied their every need along the way. They were bursting with joy because when they came back, they weren't starving. They had had plenty of food. Because when they came back, they weren't filthy and exhausted because people had opened their homes and given them a place to rest. They were not without accommodations. They, they, they come back exuberant and overflowing with joy because they were not completely rejected by everyone they spoke to. People listened to the message and people believed the message and were redeemed. These men stepped out in spite of their fears, in spite of their anxieties, and God had proved himself faithful. Time and time and time again, they had enough shoes, they had enough clothes, they had enough money, they had enough food, they had enough supplies, they had enough hospitable people to feed them and offer them beds, and the gospel message that they preached was powerful to save. There was a harvest of people who believed the gospel through their message. And they had had the remarkable joy of being a, a part of God bringing in a harvest of souls into his kingdom. 
Jesus had in every way sustained and prospered their ministry. All their fears were alleviated. All their anxieties blown away by the remarkable, sustaining, providing power of Christ when they acted in faith. They couldn't believe what God had done. They were blown away. In fact, God had done far more than they even expected, more than they ever actually dreamed. The one thing that they do say as a highlight here is they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, if you were to go back in the previous passage where Jesus commissions them, unlike when he commissions the 12, he doesn't mention to this group anything about casting out demons and the instructions. But it seems, nonetheless, that he had equipped them the same way that he had equipped the 12 that he sent out previously with this ability to, in his name, cast out demons. They clearly had the ability. It took place along the way on their missionary journey, and they were blown away. Now, I want to make a note here about this. They they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That phrase, in your name, pops up throughout the Bible. We're to pray in Jesus' name. There are different things that are said to be done in Jesus' name. And it's worth noting, I think, here, what this particularly means. When you see something like this, and you'll see it as you read your Bible throughout, but we have a clear example of it here, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This phrase, in your name, is not some sort of a magic formula in the way that some people in our modern culture use it. It's not like abracadabra or hocus pocus, where we say Jesus over this and Jesus over that, and in some sort of mystical, magical way, the very spoken nature of the word itself has some sort of magical power to do things. If you hang around the charismatic movement or people who come out of that movement very much, you'll see signs of that kind of use of this phrase. People walking around here and there praying the name of Jesus over this and the name of Jesus over that as though it's some sort of magic spell that's being cast over things that provides some sort of mystical protection that comes no other way. But it's not that at all. It's not some key ingredient in a magical spell that obligates God to act in a particular way. When we see in Jesus' name, think by the power of Jesus or on his authority. When these men say that the demons submit to us in Jesus' name, they're not saying that they went around magically saying to demons, Jesus, 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 and magically something happens. What they're saying is that when they went and found people who were demonized, they commanded the demons to come out, not on their own authority, but by the power of Christ and on the authority of Christ. And in response to that, the demons obeyed. One author gave a a good illustration that I thought was helpful. He said, when an FBI agent comes pounding on the door, he doesn't yell, open up, this is Bill. No, he yells, open up, FBI, right? Bill's name doesn't get the same response as the name of the entity that he's representing. And apart from the authority of the FBI, Bill's name is empty on its own merits. It's a good illustration. These men went around. They didn't say, come out in my name. They were nobodies. 
but they were acting on behalf of one who was a somebody, who was superior to Satan and the demons, to whom they must respond, and whose power was at work in their lives. So when you hear in Jesus' name, and when you read that, think by the power of Jesus, on the authority of Jesus, according to the will of Jesus, this is what's being taught. And so this took place. Not only did, did Jesus make good on his promises to, to supply all their needs, he went above and beyond that. They had seen Jesus cast out demons, but in no way did they ever expect that they themselves would be part of that kind of a miracle. And yet that's precisely what took place on this missionary trip. And they could not contain their joy. Couldn't contain it. I want to pause really here and, and, and sort of carve something out here. I think there are at least four elements of successful ministry that sort of jump off the page to me in looking at the text from last week and this week. And I just want to give them to you sort of as a quick shout out. We won't dwell on them, but I think they're helpful, particularly if you're thinking in terms of what it looks like to do ministry yourself. Successful, God-honoring, Christ-exalting ministry begins with the call of God. These men went on this journey because they were called by God to go. They weren't just bored with their lives and with their careers and, you know, looking for a quick and easy paycheck. They didn't just launch out on their own in their own authority. They were sent by Christ to go do something. In particular, he called them and he sent them. And Christ is still calling men, and he's still calling women to serve him and to go. He still invades people's lives, and he calls them out of whatever they're doing, and he commissions them, and he sends them amidst their own fears and anxieties to go and to represent him in the world around them. He still does that all the time. And that's where all true Christ-exalting ministry begins. There are some kinds of Christ-exalting ministry that he calls every believer to right? There are some things that, that you're, we don't need to wait on some special knock on our spiritual door that the word of God, through it, he tells us we're responsible to do. Things like evangelize the lost world around us. That isn't a, a special calling for an elite few. That is a, a calling that lays at the doorstep of every single Christian. You don't have to pray about whether it's God's will for you to share the gospel with the neighbor that lives next door who you know is lost. You don't have to wait on some particular calling for that. They're lost, you're saved, you have the gospel, the call is on your doorstep to go. The only question is, will you obey it? We're all called to share our faith. We're all called by God and commissioned to serve in the local body of Christ, to unite with the local body and to serve there, to employ whatever spiritual gifts the Lord has given us there. That is a general calling for every believer. It is a responsibility that lays at your doorstep and mine. We're not to be a sort of uh, 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 independent Christians who sort of float through the world on our own. We're called to, to live in community with other believers in a local body. And he, we're told that God has given us spiritual gifts. And they're not for our own enjoyment and our own pleasure, but they're meant to be employed in the body of Christ with other believers so that the whole body might be built up. We don't have to pray about whether we should be a part of a church. We're called to be a part of a church. We don't have to pray about whether we should serve that particular church in some particular way, shape, or form. We're all called to do that. The only question is where and how. There are some things that Christ calls all of us to do. And we're responsible to obey or to not. We're accountable for that. 
But like these 72, he also calls particular people to do particular things as well. He's still calling men and women to step out of their careers, whatever they may be, to become pastors, to become missionaries, to become theological professors, to become Bible translators, to become people who make a life of ministry. That may be you this morning. It was for these 72. And all successful ministry begins with a call of God. God calls us, he sends us. And it requires a step of faith and obedience. Really, that's the reality of, of, of ministry. When we're called to do it, none of us feel particularly equipped to do it well. And so it requires for us, just like it did for these 72, uh, an ability to overcome our fears and to set aside our anxieties and to trust God and to step out in faith and do what he's called us to do and trust him with the results of that. It requires a, a step of faith. He doesn't normally call people who are wealthy and popular and gifted. He doesn't normally call people who have in themselves what it takes to be successful at ministry. He normally calls nobodies. He normally calls ordinary people. He normally calls people who don't feel particularly equipped for the task. And it's because the people he calls know that they're that kind of person that faith is required. They can't rely on their own gifts or their own skills or their own eloquence. They have to trust Christ. So like these 72, they have to trust God. That's been my experience of pastoral ministry. Some of you have known me for a very long time. Some of you not very long. But I wish you could have known me long, long ago prior to a call to pastoral ministry. If you knew me then, you would know one of the most frightened and fearful people that you could ever imagine about particular things. Really about one particular thing. Standing up in front of a group of people and having to open my mouth and have words come out. Terrified since I was a child of that. Fifth grade, no kidding, I was telling my son about this the other day. He had to do a, a, an eighth grade speech and, and uh, 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 we were talking about this and I was so impressed with what he did because goodness knows in the eighth grade, oh, I would have been knees knocking, you know, thrown up in the bathroom or something, but he knocked it out of the park. But when I was in the fifth grade, I can remember I had to make a poster and I had to stand up in front of my class and talk about my poster. Well, I make the poster, no problem. When it was time, when I thought I was next, I asked the teacher, can I go to the restroom? And I just went and hid in the bathroom and never came back. It's like, I'm not doing that. In college, I had to take public speaking to graduate. It was a graduation requirement at Charleston Southern, no joke. I put it off to the last semester of my senior year. Like I couldn't push it any further. I was horrified. And I can remember sensing God's call in my life to pastoral ministry. I was good at math, I was good at science, and I loved chemistry and physics, and, and I wanted to be a, a chemical engineer. And that was my trajectory. And I, God made it clear to me, this is not the right path. I'm calling you to serve me, ministry. And I'm fighting with this thing. God, you've got the wrong person. Like, where have you been for the last, you know, I don't know how many years? Reading and writing and speaking, are you kidding me? This is going to be a miserable failure. But God is relentless in his call quite often. And I can identify with these 72 because I can remember saying out loud to God, all right, fine, fine. 
I'll do this. But I'm not responsible when this thing blows up. This is on you. Who knew? You know? Not that I'm any model of pastoral ministry, but I can tell you this. God has sustained me now for some 25 years. He's helped me somehow do it. Every week, he gives me what I, what I need to be able to stand here in front of you and open my mouth. And most cases, something intelligible comes out. It requires a step of faith and obedience. And it's true that God's calling your life too. Whether he's calling you to teach a Sunday school class or to, to lead a Bible study or to serve in the children's ministry or the student ministry or he's called you to lead some ministry and launch something that we haven't begun yet or he's called you into some missions endeavor or he's calling you out of your career into vocational ministry. You, it requires a step of faith and obedience. It requires you taking a step and saying, God, I don't know that this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust you to do it. And all successful ministry is sustained through divine provision. That is, it's, it's never based upon the, 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 uh, what the person has in their own pack pocket to start with. It's sustained because God provides and God sustains. And at the end of the day, the one who's called and the one who steps out in faith and obedience and, and, and goes and follows at the end of the day can put their head on the pillow and they can just marvel. At, you know what, God, I don't know how in the world all that came together, but you made it come together. Praise you. It's sustained through divine provision. Somehow, when we obey him, he takes our meager efforts and our stammering tongues and he uses them for his glory. Ministry that lasts is never built off of human wisdom or human strategy. It's never built off of human charisma or human persuasive ability. Ministry that lasts is based off of divine provision. There are a lot of ministries these days that start on human wisdom and strategy and charisma and persuasive ability they don't last the ones that last are the ordinary people who have nothing to offer but Christ provides everything and sustains them right to the end when all that takes place the result of it all is just sheer joy it's just sheer joy it's a marveling at the grace of God who takes a nobody and does something remarkable through them and that's what we see here there are a lot of things that can bring us joy there are a lot of things that could bring us joy. But I can tell you this, from a lot of years of serving Christ, there is no joy quite like being a part of God's work in redeeming sinners for his kingdom. There's no joy that matches it. Nothing. There's absolutely no joy that's like seeing God use you in some small way to impact people for eternity. There's nothing like sharing the gospel with somebody and having them respond in faith and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. There's no joy like that. And that's what these 72 came back celebrating. God's provision God's sustainment, God's use of them in these ways. And they're joyful, and rightfully so. But then Jesus says to them something really sort of strange in response. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
Now, as we read that, some questions begin to pop into our heads, right? Like, what does he mean when he said, I saw, I saw Satan fall from heaven? When exactly did he see this? And what is this authority to tread on serpents and scorpions? What's all this about? Well, Bible commentators are all over the place with the variety of possibilities of what Jesus might possibly mean here. I'll sort of summarize them in sort of three groupings and tell you what I think, and you can take it from there on your own. Uh, some think that what Jesus is saying here is that he's reflecting to, on, on an event that took place in the past, particularly Satan's fall from heaven. It, it, just a, a quick summary of who is Satan. Satan was a created angel, the highest of the order of angels, the highest of all the angels. It was Satan, but he rebelled against God. He sought to usurp God's authority and God's throne. He wanted to rule and not be ruled, and as a result of that, he's judged by God, and he's cast out of heaven. Now, you can write down Isaiah 14, 12, quite likely uh, describes this particular event. We're told that as part of the judgment and part of his rebellion, a third of the angels joined in with him. They too were judged and permanently cast out of heaven, becoming the demons. And when Satan and the demons now were cast out of heaven, we're told in the scripture that he was cast down to earth, that he fell from heaven and was cast to earth, where he's given a sort of a, a temporary dominion, if you will. We see this in passages like John 12, 31, where he's called the, the ruler of this world. Or in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where Satan is referred to as the God, little g, of this world. He's given a, a temporary dominion here among men. It's temporary because it exists under the sovereignty of God, and one day it will be no more. But some say that what Jesus is talking about here, when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven, is he's saying he's reflecting back on this event that took place in the past. And he's describing it here this way. Now, the problem I have with this is, what does that have to do with the ministry of the 72? What does that have to do with their coming back rejoicing and the things that they've just said? To me, there doesn't seem to be much of a, a connection to that. There are others who say, no, he's not looking at Satan's fall in the past. What he's looking at is the future. He's looking at uh, Satan's ultimate defeat at the cross. He, he sees the, his, his own impending death and resurrection and the defeat of Satan that comes through his, his death and his resurrection. And, and, and ultimately there at the cross and at the tomb, he, he strips Satan of, of his power and he defeats him permanently, sealing his fate and robbing him of, of any power to condemn and harass and destroy men. In Colossians 2, 15, Paul describes this work of Christ at the cross. He, he, he describes him as disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's speaking there of the cross. So it's true that, it, in a sense, Christ triumphs over Satan and the demonic at the cross and puts them to open shame. But is that what he's talking about here? Again, it's a struggle for me to, to make the connection here to the ministry of the 72. There's a sort of a third grouping of ways to look at this, and, and they would be sort of according to this. Not looking back at Satan's fall from heaven in the past, not looking forward to the cross where he's ultimately defeated, but seeing in the ministry of the 72 sort of a, a gradual unwinding, if you will, of the power of Satan to control. 
Satan's ongoing defeat, if you will, as the gospel progresses and prevails. As these 72 men went out and and they cast out demons and through their preaching, people are being saved. They are one by one destroying Satan's kingdom as the kingdom of God is being ushered in. They're releasing men from his grip and from his dominion. Like little flashes of lightning here and there, Satan's kingdom is beginning to crumble through the work of these men. And every person from whom they cast out a demon and every redeemed soul who responded to their gospel preaching was simply a a little foretaste of what is going to one day become complete. Not only is Satan's kingdom going to be destroyed forever, but he too is going to be thrown into a lake of fire. That explanation makes the most sense to me. What Jesus is saying, as you're going out, I saw the kingdom of Satan crumbling. One by one. Examples of what's going to one day be complete. What is this authority to trample serpents and scorpions? Should we become a snake-handling church next week and bring in the vipers? All God's people said, no! That's what all God's people said to that. Although, places that do that will find some substance to their argument here. Uh, a couple of things I want to say on this. I don't want to camp here too long because it's insignificant really in the big picture, but there's a perfect tense verb. Jesus is talking about something that has already been given to them, not something that he's giving them anew. In other words, he's not saying, now that you've come back, I'm going to give you this new power to do these things. He's reflecting on a power that he's already given them. And just let me say this, serpents and scorpions, you can do this research on your own, are sort of common Old Testament images of Satan and the demons and of evil in general. And it's likely symbolic of that here. Along with the ability to heal and the ability to perform other miracles, Christ had given these men the ability to have power over the demonic. So in a very real sense, they had trampled on Satan and the demons. Jesus had blessed and sustained their ministry, and they were filled with joy. These men were, oh, they were bubbling over with joy. You could just see them sort of skipping down the dirt road on the way back, telling stories to one another of what had taken place. But Jesus realizes that the very thing that brings these men great joy is also a potential landmine for their faith. And so he immediately gives them a warning. And he says this in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. With ministry success comes a very real temptation. And that temptation is that one might become enamored with the ministry itself. That a person might become focused on all the wrong things. And Jesus wants to remind these men that there's one thing above all things that should be the anchor of their joy. And it's not their successful ministry. It's one simple truth. It's the fact that Almighty God would save them. It's the fact that their sins were forgiven. It's the fact that their eternity was secure. Jesus wants to remind them to anchor their hope and their joy in the thing that matters most. 
he wasn't forbidding them here from finding joy in the work of their ministry. What he's doing is he's using language to make a comparison in the form of a negation. He's not rebuking them for being joyful in ministry. Rightfully so, they were rejoicing in that. What he is doing is reminding them that there's something more important than the successful ministry that they've just experienced. He said, if you want to rejoice in something and you want to continue having your joy anchored in something, it should be this, that your names are recorded in heaven, that your names are written in heaven. Now, in the first century, having your name written in the right book was very, very significant. The Romans kept very detailed and specific records of who belonged to them, who were the citizens of of a particular city-state, and having your name written on that roll was, was, was very important. It, it included several things. It, it, it indicated that a person belonged there. It indicated that they had uh, the full rights of citizenship in that particular place and that they were entitled to property and protection there. Having your name written in the book mattered. To have our names written in heaven matters also. It indicates that the king knows us and that we are citizens of his kingdom. It indicates that we have his guarantee of eternal life, that that we have all the rights and privileges of heaven even before we get there. The Bible over and over uses this illustration of having names written in the book Philippians 4, 3, Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life, Paul talks about. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews refers to the assembly of the firstborn who are, he says, enrolled in heaven. He's talking about Christians. In Revelation 3, verse 5, speaking of believers, Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Over and over, the Bible speaks of a book of life, a book in which the names of all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted their lives to him are written. Uh, A book where the name of a believer is written, indicating that they belong to the king, that they possess citizenship into his kingdom, that they have the rights to his property and protection and his eternal security, that that they belong to the king, that they're his citizens, and that they're secure underneath his reign. And Jesus is saying to these men, listen, the true significance of your lives is not to be found in your ministry success. It's to be found in the fact that God has claimed you to be his people. The main thing that that really should blow you away is not that Jesus would work wonders through you, but rather that Jesus would save you to begin with. Keeping our joy anchored there keeps us humble. And that's what these men needed. We look again to J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop who said this, it was doubtless an honor and a privilege to be allowed to cast out devils. The disciples were right to be thankful, but it was a far higher privilege to be converted and pardoned men and to have their names written in the register of saved souls. You know what the best hedge against ministry pride is a never-ending joy and wonder at the undeserved grace of God in saving us.
you'll never become proud in your ministry, wherever that is, if you cultivate in your heart a never-ending joy and wonder that God would redeem somebody like you. When you regularly reflect on the absolute wonder that your name is written in God's book and it will never be blotted out. The, the sheer exhilaration that comes from understanding and knowing that a holy God would save a rotten sinner like you. A heart that marvels at the fact that though I deserve justice, God has given me grace. That fact alone will humble your heart and protects you from pridefulness in serving, particularly when you're serving and things are going well. God has other ways of humbling his people. But I think a true humility is anchored right here where Christ reminds these men to anchor themselves and this wonder that we're saved and this absolute astoundedness at the fact that while I deserve hell, Christ has given me eternal life and written my name in his book. Not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, but simply because he's loved me and chosen to pour out his grace. No other reason. What a marvelous truth. And yet so underplayed in our lives and undervalued. We find joy in frivolous things. And we don't anchor our joy in the right place. And these men were, were tempted to do the same. And so Christ reminds them in a very sort of a vivid way here about the kind of joy that should sustain them. He shifts gears in verses 21 through 22. And to be honest, we don't have a whole lot of time to sort of walk through this. So I'm going to give it to you sort of just uh, as a teaser, if you will. And we'll come back to it. Uh, next week. In that same hour, he rejoiced, that's Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There is so much in that text. There are things that deal with the interaction of Trinity that I won't mention now, but maybe we will next week. But the overarching theme here is this. Christ is expressing his joy. The 72 are not the only ones filled with joy. Jesus, we're told, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And that word that's translated rejoiced in English, like we don't get the full effect of it. It's a word that means exuberance and, and sort of overabundance of joy. Christ is, is, is exuberant in his joy about something. There's something that he is reflecting on here that brings abject rejoicing to his heart. A full kind of joy through the Holy Spirit. And what exactly is it that he's rejoicing about? This may be surprising to some of you. What he's rejoicing about 
is the gracious will of God and the sovereign election of sinners. The gracious will of God and the sovereign election of sinners. That's what has Christ rejoicing. Fascinating enough, you can search the New Testament and see if you find another instance where it's specifically noted that Christ is rejoicing over something. Tell me if you find anything. We're told here he's rejoicing about something. The gracious will of God and the sovereign election of sinners. And he says it two ways. He says, I rejoice. What is he rejoicing? He's rejoicing that in God's sovereign will, he's hidden the gospel from some people and he's revealed it to others. He's, he's hidden it from some people. We're told he's hidden it from the wise and the understanding and he's revealed it to little children. And then later on in the text, we're told where he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And he says, there's nobody who knows the father fully except the son and who? Anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. So in two different ways, he's talking about God's, uh, the sovereign will of God in sovereign election or the gracious will of God in sovereign election. In one sense, the father uh, hides the truth from some people and he reveals it to other people. And at the same time, the son himself has the authority to reveal the truth to some and not to others. Who are the wise and the understanding to whom these things are hidden? Who are the little children to whom they're revealed? To what kind of people does the son choose to reveal the father? Well, you think about that this week and we'll answer it next week. And all God's people said, oh golly. Now you have to come back next week. It's like your favorite TV show, right? Whatever it is. And this one's not on Netflix, so you can't binge it today. You gotta wait. Let me just close this morning's time together by asking you this. When was the last time you reflected in sheer wonder on the fact that your name is written in God's book? When was the last time that the thought of God saving you brought you to abject rejoicing? What should fuel our worship every single time we gather? It should be that. That we come together and we look at one another and we say, dear God, how is it possible that you saved me? And beyond that, how is it possible you saved her? You are something else, God. We are nothing and we are nobodies. But in your kindness and your love, you wrote our names in the book. You opened our eyes to the truth. You drew us to yourself. You granted us the faith to believe. You granted our forgiveness. You welcomed us into your family. You made us sons and daughters. And you wrote our names in the book. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing. When was the last time your heart just exploded with joy? at being a redeemed child of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when we first come to faith in Christ, 
when we first see you for who you are and respond in faith. Our life is usually marked by excitement and joy. There's this white hot burning joy that comes with knowing that my sins are forgiven and I now belong to you. And yet the great danger of life as a Christian is that over time, other things crowd that joy out. And what used to burn white hot in our hearts becomes distant embers that barely smolder. And instead of exuberant joy, our lives get marked by things like complaining and whining, jealousy, selfish ambitions, feeling inferior to other people for various reasons. Pining for things that we don't have that we think we deserve. And we forget what a cosmic privilege it is to have our name written in your book. And we forget that if you gave us nothing else in the way of blessings in this life, that alone would be enough to keep us rejoicing forever. Lord, I pray for my, my own heart and the hearts of my friends, particularly those who've been Christians for a long time. Help us, Lord, to examine our hearts this morning and ask the question, is our joy anchored in our salvation? Does that joy rise above every other joy in our lives? If it's not, Lord, bring it to the surface. Revive us again in the joy that comes from knowing you. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Thank you for choosing to reveal yourself to us and the Father. Thank you for calling us to yourself and dying that we might live. May our hearts burn with a joy that comes from that realization every day. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.